trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, you're going to be glad you tuned in today because I've got a special guest I want to introduce to you. His name is Chris Rydell. Chris, I, did I butcher your name? Please tell me I got it somewhere in the ballpark. Chris Rydell. Rydell. Chris Rydell is what I meant to say. He is uh, he is an author and a whistleblower, and I think you're going to want to pay very close attention to what his specialty is because he has saved somewhere in the neighborhood of $550 million of taxpayer money uh, by by uncovering medical fraud. Now, Chris, before we get to your book, before we get to your 2011 Whistleblower of the Year Award, I want you to tell our listeners just a little bit, bit about who you are. You told me before we went on the year, you've recently retired and you're finding it to your liking, but um, tell me who you are and what makes you tick. Um, I'm a Silicon Valley serial entrepreneur. I founded my first medical device company in healthcare at the age of 24. And since then, I've, I've founded and led five other companies in healthcare. Uh, one other medical device company, two clinical laboratories, and one cardiovascular disease management company. So I've been in healthcare for a very long time. And at the same time, I was able to coach soccer and basketball for my kids. And uh, it's been a full life, and I love now being retired. And you happen to have the, the advantage of living in one of the most beautiful places on planet Earth, uh, that being you know, the Silicon Valley. Um, talk to me a little bit about uh, the, the amount of money that is involved in health care. I don't think anybody looks at health care and thinks, oh, yeah, that is that's so affordable and so inexpensive. Normally, we kind of have to catch our breath when anybody says I'm going in for a procedure or, you know, I've, I've uh, had an illness or a surgery that had to come up. And, and our first thought is, wow. How are you ever going to afford it? I guess that when there's that much money involved, it stands to reason that someone is going to want to take advantage. So talk to us about health care fraud. What is the most common kind of health care fraud that you have encountered? Health care fraud is just massive. Um, a decade ago, the FBI estimated that every year, $234 billion were stolen from taxpayers from healthcare fraud. And DOJ is very, very poor, the Department of Justice, at doing anything about it. Last year, they proudly pro- proclaimed they, they collected $2.6 billion. That's 1.3% of the fraud that's going on. Wow. So it is just massive. And in the last 15 years, I have morphed from a Silicon Valley CEO into a fraud fighter, which I, I still do. I'm trying to Stop these thefts uh, on taxpayers. So let's uh, let's talk about what what that fraud looks like. Are, are there some areas of healthcare that are more prone to fraud than others? Well, certainly in the pharmaceutical industry, uh, you see all types of, of fraud. Um, you know, off-label marketing of drugs for which they're not approved. Um, one of the biggest ones was for uh, drugs that failed quality control and were sold anyway. Uh, drugs that are made in un, 
sterile environments. So there's been a lot of pharmaceutical healthcare fraud. I've done a lot of laboratory industry fraud, and there it's just it's just so rampant. The first case I got involved with uh, was against the two big, we call them blood brothers. Uh, they're the two largest labs in the world, Quest and LabCorp. And we all have tests from these two labs. We visited them at some point in time. And uh, they have a business model developed by the leadership. Uh, this wasn't a freak. Uh, in California, the state is entitled to the lowest charge. They charge anybody. But what they were doing was charging California 20 to 40 times more Oof. than they were charging physicians or clinics or uh, IPAs for capitated contracts. I mean, just never thought they'd get caught. And that was my first case. It took, uh, what, five years of intense detective work. One of the things you learn when you become a whistleblower is you're going to learn some new skills. <laughs> Being a detective is one of them. I had no idea how detectives do what they do. Um, and it, it settled in 2011. Uh, between the two companies, it was almost $300 million. And and who gets to foot the bill for that fraud? Um, I mean, it's it's not just the private customer, right? The taxpayers, it seems like, would, would have to take the hit on a lot of this. No, it's the shareholders. Well, the money is stolen from taxpayers. But uh, unfortunately, with all of these settlements, particularly with public companies, the CEO doesn't lose his job. He doesn't lose his bonus. He doesn't get, you know, uh, it's the shareholders that pay that money. Interesting. So what was the first case that, uh, where did you first encounter it? And, and what, uh, what helped you transform into a whistleblower? Walk us through your story. Sure. I started my fourth company in 2003 as a clinical laboratory, and uh, we wanted to deliver the best service and quality, bar none, in the industry. And we did that. Um, but what we found is doctors always want better service and quality. And many, many doctors said, we'd switch from Quest and LabCorp in a heartbeat if you will match this discounted price I get. And so when I looked at these prices, I said, my God, they're below cost. I called our regulatory council and said, you know, if I attempt to compete with this pricing, would I have any legal liability? And he goes, oh, yeah. First of all, they're kickbacks. They violate both the federal and state kickback statutes. And secondly, they violate this California statute where Medi-Cal is entitled to the lowest charge. At that point, I had to make a decision. I could either knowingly violate federal and state law, which I wasn't going to do. I could close our laboratory, lay off 150 great workers, lose almost all of our life savings, or I could try to stop it. I chose to become a whistleblower because it was the only way I could think of to try to stop it. Who are the primary culprits in cases like this, um, who makes the call? Hey, let's uh, let's cut a corner here, or let's uh, let's make this worth uh, your while and my while. Um, is is it? I, I'm gathering it's probably not the the average workers at these companies. You'd mentioned CEOs uh, seem to to get by with very little accountability. But whose idea is it generally that uh, we could work this to our advantage? Um. The idea can come from marketing, can come from anybody, but invariably it is approved by senior management. Invariably. 
they know what's going on. Um, and they just think they can get away with it. And in my experience, it pays. And that's why it's so rampant. Uh, the Department of Justice has not put anybody in jail uh, for many of my cases, many cases. Uh, and they generally are more than happy to uh, enter into, quote, affordable civil settlements. They'll let you keep 70 to 80 percent of what you stole. And that's why it continues. It just pays. And, and are there were there no safeguards built into the system to, to have accountability for this? How were they able to, to get away with it without, uh, you know, red flags being raised? It's very hard in healthcare to under, to find fraud because the person who orders the test, the doctor, isn't involved generally in the billing. Uh, insurance companies, you know, they receive, I ordered this, and these are the CPT codes, uh, who, who make the payments. And patients themselves often don't make any payments. So it, it's very hard to find. It takes an insider to really understand what's going on. You know, I, I have some friends who work in healthcare. Um, one of them worked as, as a, uh, an office manager. And I remember a few years ago, I'm talking five, maybe six years ago, her talking about the incredible amount of training that went into learning uh, medical billing. And, and I don't know what changed because I haven't worked in that environment, but I gathered that whatever the system was, was immensely complicated when it came to to billing, you know, different items. It, it, it is it unnecessarily complicated in your opinion? Oh boy, uh, he is absolutely right. It is very complicated, uh, and insurance companies want to do everything they can do not to pay. So they're delighted to have it be so complicated, and they know that uh, if they don't pay, a lot of people are just going to accept it. It's the rare person who will make a big think about it. It is very complicated. And in part because it's so complicated, fraudsters can take advantage of that. Okay. We are coming up on the break here. Chris Rydell is my guest. He is a whistleblower. He is also the author of Blood Money. And look, if you have ever gasped when you saw, you know, medical spending or you've wondered about uh, somebody taking advantage of the system, Chris has some stories he could tell us. In fact, we're going to get to some of those stories just the other side of these messages. Please stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. My guest is Chris Rydell. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a certain part of my heart that just has great respect for whistleblowers. Because I don't think they necessarily have a very easy job to do. But um, when there is something hinky going on and, and someone needs to say, hey, enough of that, um, Chris is your guy. And he, he's actually written a book about this. Blood Money is the name of the book. And, and Chris, I have to ask you this. Was there a point where, where you had to summon some courage? I mean, was, was, it, uh, was there risk to you in stepping forward and saying, I see medical fraud going on and I've got to do something? Brian, I did not know this at the time, but what I have learned is that most whistleblowers tend to be utterly destroyed once the companies 
identify who they are. I mean, probably close to half end up bankrupt, uh, unemployable, and divorced. It's rough. And in my case, uh, we were two weeks away from financial bankruptcy, both personally and professionally with our business, before our big settlement came in. I mean, it's people who do this are very brave people. And as I said, I didn't know when I started, or I, I don't know if I would have done it. I just felt in my heart it was the right thing to do. And once you got started, it, it sounds like you, um, I don't know if you found a sense of mission or a sense of purpose or uh, just uh, just discovered that you liked uh, being a, a truth teller and a truth seeker. And, and apparently you've got some pretty good skills that you've developed over the years of doing this. I've had to learn how to be a detective. And in Blood Money, I mean, it's just been a, an amazing story for me. In the book, these are all true. Uh, there are stories of attempted murder, uh, extortion, money laundering, CEOs uh, going to the Cayman Islands to hide their money, hiding their money in shipping containers, <laughs> hiding gold in shipping containers in a backyard. Wow. Um, I mean, it's just some amazing story. There's one uh, where the governor of Florida sabotaged his own attorney general's case. And it's just, it's like you read this and you go, how can this be true? I guess it's when you have that kind of money at stake, maybe the temptation is what, what leads people to, to do some extraordinarily wrong things. You know, the, the payoff, they feel, would be worth it. Um, how, tell me about the, the risks that they face when they are found out, when, when they are held accountable. What are the penalties that, uh, that they have faced? Well, as I mentioned earlier, a gen- what happens is you file the lawsuit under seal, and then the Department of Justice investigates it and that generally takes three to four years um and then if they like it uh, they'll call the defendants in and they'll try and get them to settle if they don't settle then they start litigating it on its way to a trial uh but generally they're willing to take 20 to 30 cents of the money that was stolen so the bad guys keep a lot of money and they don't really suffer any consequences that's kind of sad. And I'm not it's not because I, I want to stand around and, you know, uh, gather rocks to throw at people. But um, somebody has to foot that bill. And, and it sounds like the taxpayers take a pretty good hit. Um, the shareholders take a pretty good hit. I don't think it's asking too much, you know, to want some accountability. In your opinion, do the laws in the various states need to be changed? Is it something that needs to be addressed at the federal no, the level? The laws are just fine. Oh, they're quite draconian, actually. It's just the Department of Justice doesn't want to have to face off with the best lawyers in the country in a courtroom. They'd much rather have a cheap civil settlement. And for whatever reason, they don't want to put people in jail. But one of my, the last chapter of my book are my recommendations for what the Department of Justice can do to really improve things. And they're simple. One of them is require uh, that every member of the board of directors and senior management disgorge all compensation during the time of the fraud. If you do that, you're suddenly going to have the board of directors hiring people to make sure it doesn't happen. Wow. Did, was there ever a point where you were engaged in this, uh, this, this battle that you felt like, you know what, I am David going up against Goliath. 
I don't think I have a chance. Or or did you feel like, no, I'm going to do this no matter what it takes? I felt when I first started and that I just had to do it. And I had great confidence that uh, we knew what the law was. I had great attorneys. And um, we had all the facts to prove it. Um, I later learned we were very lucky because the most important thing in a whistleblower case is who is the attorney from the government that is assigned to you. In California, with our first case, we had a great, we had a wonderful working relationship. We worked together. In six other states, with the same defendants, the same facts, the same law, the attorney generals there chose not to work with us, and they didn't work out well. Wow. Tell me about the award that you won back in 2011. I didn't know what it was at the time, and um, my attorney went with me, flew back to New York, and walked into this ballroom with like 250 attorneys, all in suits and ties. And I'm going, uh-oh. And so I'm sitting next to the chief of the civil division of DOJ on one side and the president of taxpayers against fraud on the other. And uh, Harry Marco Polis, who's the guy that uh, brought out Bernie Madoff, got up and starts talking about me. And I realized I'm going to have to give a speech. Wow. And I had no idea what I said. But I later learned that from meeting with other people who won the award, what a great accomplishment that was. And I take great pride in having done that. Tell me about your book, Blood Money. Am I going to have to, do I need to invest in a dictionary so I can understand the, the, the various terms uh, that are being used? Is it going to expand my vocabulary as I read it? I hope not. Uh, I, I tried to write it so that, you know, anybody could understand this stuff. And uh, I, again, I tried to write it as a true legal thrill. You know, and many people have told me, in fact, it is a page turner and they can't put it down. Uh, and I go into the personalities involved. I have pictures of the bad guys in the book. And I think my favorite chapter was uh, a very bad group of individuals from the company that went from uh, startup to, in four years, $450 million in revenue with all sorts of kickbacks and scams. Wow. And they were foolish enough to go to trial. And sitting through that trial and describing the trial in the book, it took place in the South, was just fascinating. What, uh, what would you say uh, was your proudest moment as you have, have carried on this fight over the years? I know you're retired now, but I bet, I'll bet there was at least one point where you, you were feeling, I'm really glad I did this. Can you pick a, can you pick a single moment? First, the first case against LabCorp and Quest in California, where they ended up paying almost $300 million. It was uh, where I learned to be a detective and, and worked so closely with the attorney generals in California. It was a marvelous experience, and we were so thrilled that it worked out well. Has this felt validating? Has this prompted other people to step up and follow in your footsteps? Oh yeah, there are more and more whistleblower suits every year. Uh, you know, people read about these huge awards that whistleblowers get, and they say, "Well, I want to try and do something like that." But in my experience, with the most successful whistleblowers, they don't do it for the money. I didn't do it for the money. They wanted to right a wrong. 
Well, I think that's a, that's the best possible reason for getting involved. And as you mentioned, it's not without risk as well. Um, let's tell people, uh, Chris, where can they get your book? Thank you, Brian. Uh, it's available uh, everywhere. Uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, just, you know, Type in Chris Rydell Blood Money and it'll come up. Or go to Amazon and type in Blood Money and it will come up. Okay, and I'm including and the, uh, I'm including a link in the book. show notes that uh, oh, will ta- will take them to your website, ChrisRydellAuthor.com, and they can get some information there. Chris, we're up against the clock here. Thank you so much for being my guest. Brian, it was a real pleasure. Thank you. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So I was out and about yesterday. I know I don't do it often, so I thought I'd talk about it. No, actually, I'm... I made a rare run to the store, and while I was there, my phone rang. And it was a friend who uh, I, I was friends with in, in southern Utah. <clears throat> in fact, I still believed he lived there, but apparently he has since moved to Idaho. And he said, hey, I just wanted you to know that uh, Ammon Bundy was arrested earlier today, bailed out immediately, and then uh, was just arrested again about 15 minutes ago. I know for some people, they're going to hear, oh, Ammon Bundy, well, he's been arrested a lot here lately. And you know what? In the last year, I can think of at least five different times that Ammon has found himself under arrest. I mean, look, for most of us, if you've never been in handcuffs, uh, that's a pretty serious threat, right? Nobody wants to see you with your handcuffs, uh, your arms handcuffed behind your back and, you know, being perp walked to the police car for the long, lonely ride to jail. So for a lot of people, that would be a terrifying thing. But... Ammon has, uh, how can I say this? He's been in the lion's den before. He's been barked at by a lot bigger and meaner dogs than the Idaho State Police. But it is so interesting to me that when he goes to show up to some of the various hearings that they've had, and and, and invariably these are related to COVID-related policies. And when he shows up as a citizen to see what his government is doing, Lawmakers don't like it. They're terrified of him. And it's not because he's a violent individual. It's not because he's there to attack anybody. It's because he's soft-spoken and he is is immovable when it comes to uh, uh, making him abandon his rights. So we saw him a few months ago, you know, taken out, strapped to an office chair. You know, they zip-tied him to an office chair and arrested him. Why? Because he was told he couldn't be in the visitor's gallery or the press gallery there at the Idaho Capitol. He went back the next day. They arrested him again. Now, here's the interesting part. And I look, I'm sounding a little bit frustrated because uh, I understand what he is trying to do, accomplish here is accountability for those people who are representing the people of the state of Idaho, the, the elected representatives. And apparently when he went to show up for his uh, arraignment or, or his uh, his court date in connection with those two earlier arrests, and I believe I believe the charge they threw at him was trespassing. They trespassed him from the Capitol and told him, we don't want you here. 
So he shows up at the courthouse. He's there. He's on time. And they tell him at the courthouse door, you can't come in here without a mask. Now, keep in mind, Idaho's mask mandate is done. They don't have a mask mandate anymore, but uh, the the security, the the guards there held him at the door, would not let him in. They said, you just got to put on the mask. And uh, I don't know if you knew this, but Ammon's been pretty uh, adamant about, I'm not going to wear a mask. You can't make me wear a mask. If this is so bad, then let's do a virtual session like people were doing, you know, a few months ago. They held him at the door until the time for his hearing came At which point the judge looked around and said, well, he's not here. Failure to appear and issued a warrant. And they arrested him for that. Now, my understanding is the Idaho legislature is calling a special session and is in special session right now. And at least one of the purposes of that session is for them to craft some type of policy or legislation that would grant them immunity from any harm done by the policies that they have allowed to take place or that the governor has ordered or that other non-legislative people have enforced on the people of Idaho. Basically, they're trying to create a get-out-of-jail-free card so that nobody can come back and hold them accountable for misusing the power with which they were trusted. And that's the kind of thing that's uh, right up Ammon's alley. He's, uh, He's definitely not one to just take that lying down. So Ammon uh, apparently showed up at the Capitol yesterday, got himself arrested, not once, but twice. And I want to just play a couple of minutes of of a a video message that he posted on peoplesrights.org. I want you to hear it in his own words, in his own voice. And uh, this says a lot. Here's what he had to say. These are serious things. And I'm either so crazy that I've lost it, completely lost it that I would go down and challenge these things and get arrested over and over and, and act like I, could, I should be able to have a jury trial, act like I should be able to have, you know, a fair shot at trying to defend myself against these criminals. Either I'm completely crazy or we've got a really, really big problem. And, you know, I've been trying to do my best at warning people and showing people and exposing people what this COVID is all about. It is about force. It is about taking the rights of the people away, you and I. It is about, they use it for everything, excuse for everything. Excuse not to have a jury trial. Excuse to not to have hearings. Excuse to just completely trample on the rights of the people. Excuse to arrest you here and arrest you there. Excuse to destroy the liberties of the people of an entire state and then try to get immunity at at a special legislative session. And then the excuse to arrest people that show up peacefully peacefully show up and just try to make a difference. So anyway, I'm either absolutely insane and uh, I've lost my mind um, or we've got a big problem. Yeah, to, to put it mildly. And I know there are plenty of people who jump on the bandwagon. Ammon, you are crazy. You're stupid. You're insane. I only say this because I know the man personally. And uh, I had the chance to cover, you know, the Bundy's trial down in Las Vegas a few years ago. I've had the chance to work with Ammon on a weekly basis when he was hosting the Liberty Effect podcast. I think the guy is sincere. And whether you agree with his, his methods or not, he is not a violent individual. I don't think he's an unreasonable individual. But he sure scares the you-know-what out of those people in authority in his uh, current home state of Idaho.
And, and I can understand. I mean, I, I get it. They're not used to people standing up to it. Most of the time, they just flex. They have one of their police officers flex at you. No, oh, okay, well, you know, that's, that's my cue to roll over on my back and, you know, pee on myself to show my submission. Ammon doesn't do that. He's persistent. And apparently the threat of being arrested does not particularly uh, impress him or doesn't make him, uh, you know, cower in fear and stop standing up for what he believes in. So I look, I'm not going to try to persuade you that, uh, boy, you should be on his side. But I am going to tell you that uh, the, the news media, I think, gives him short shrift. I don't think they report fairly on what's going on. I look back. Uh, what was it back in football season? When, Am- when Ammon wanted to go and see his, uh, his son's uh, football game, they wouldn't let him go into the game without a mask. Okay, fine, he says. I'll just stand out here outside the stadium and watch the game from afar. And what happened? Well, the authorities, I believe this was in Caldwell, Idaho, the school district authorities called off the rest of the game. They turned a whole stadium of people out because Ammon refused to submit. Look, I, I, I understand for some people it's like, well, he's just making trouble. The very fact he showed up there, that was just going to cause trouble. And I suspect it's going to be like this, uh, like, like we've seen with other historical figures who stood for something at a time when it was not popular. Whether it was Harriet Tubman helping escaped slaves, you know, find their way, you know, to freedom through the Underground Railroad. Whether it was, uh, sorry, Rosa Parks, her name escaped me for a moment, refusing to give up her seat on the bus. These were not popular moves. Sophie Scholl and the, the White Rose Society. Oh, you better believe there was a lot of anger being directed at them. Why? Because they were being unpatriotic and everybody understood it. No sane person would ever, you know, agree with what they were saying. And yet time has a way of kind of vindicating those who are willing to make that unpopular, though principled, stand. My prediction is this. There's going to come a day where people are going to recognize. Yeah, he definitely ruffled a few people's feathers. But did he do it for the right reason? And I think that's that's the thing that's going to have to be answered. I'm convinced he's more right than wrong. But then again, I like because I know the man personally. I've had the chance to hang out with him. I've had the chance to pray with him. Um, I believe he is a very sincere individual of very deep faith. And the fact that that concerns people in power. That's not my problem. The fact that it concerns people in power, though should be a red flag to the rest of us that uh, maybe they're doing stuff that they know they really hadn't ought to be doing. So you're going to hear a lot of, uh, I'm sure you're going to hear a lot about this. The memes have already started to circulate across uh, social media. Look, Ammon Bundy's getting wheelbarrowed away again in handcuffs. I think it's more of a condemnation of the uh, authoritarian mentality that's taken hold at so many state houses, even city council chambers, county commission chambers, and definitely at the federal level as well. I'm just grateful there's still a few people who have the guts to stand up. We need more Ammon Bundys. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I was going to let the Ammon Bundy thing go, but i got to make one more quick note here. When Ammon was arrested for, uh, <laughs> for, for not showing up for, for court, you know, after he showed up for court, but they wouldn't let him into the, the courthouse on, uh, you know, the, that f- they, they charged him with failure to appear after keeping him out of the courthouse because he wouldn't put on a mask. Um, do you realize he probably was, was counting on, well, we'll take this to the jury. Let's see what the jury has to say. And just for the record, Ammon has had very, very good luck with juries who, once they are presented with the facts, uh, are pretty good at recognizing, hey, government is way out of its lane. Well, I just learned that uh, the judge who was originally uh, going to uh, uh, see that see that uh, Ammon was charged instead has, has now said, well, you know what we're going to do? I'm going to order mediation on this case against trespassing Ammon and also uh, Aaron Schmidt from the People's House of Representatives in Boise, Idaho. The judge apparently saw the writing on the wall, and this judge and under Sheriff Tom or under Sheriff under Sheriff Scott Johnson, uh, who uh, ended up torturing Ammon and uh, Aaron at the Ada County Jail. By torture, I mean they kept them in a cold holding cell. They refused to uh, to you know let them out of this holding cell because these guys wouldn't submit to a strip search upon being uh, jailed for merely you know showing up at the at the the state house. Well, they don't want that to go before the jury. I think they understand this is this is going to make the state look dirty. It's going to make those in authority look like tyrants. Maybe it's time that uh, people saw, you know, this is what when you say, you know, I'm a law and order conservative taken to its extreme. This is where it leads you. Anyway, I think I'll throw a link in to the show notes at the com, and, and you can check this out for yourself. I kind of got sidetracked because I really didn't uh, plan on spending a lot of time on that. But the more I looked into it, the, the more it just rubbed me the wrong way. And I'm not telling you, therefore, you need to be angry and you need to be directing hatred. I'm not even going to tell you to be making phone calls, but I think you should be aware this is how authority acts when it is challenged. And, and, and the question and the, the thing that you and I have to be capable of doing is questioning. Is that is that legitimate authority? Are they acting reasonably? Are they acting within the scope of the power that the people have trusted them? And if the answer is no, then we start to think about, well, then what can we do about this? Especially when they're meeting, apparently, to try to, you know, conjure up some form of immunity from any accountability. Political systems broke. <laughs> it is just broken. And I, I don't think uh, voting harder and voting the right way is necessarily going to fix it. I think we've got to we've got to figure out how to make ourselves unplayable pieces on their chessboard, which can be tough. Because those in authority are very fond of using force or the threat of force to get their way. I mean, for crying out loud. They arrested a mom up there in Idaho, Sarah Walton Brady, for, uh, for simply taking her kids out to play when this playground is closed. And when she wouldn't cower and leave, when she told the cops, what are you going to do, arrest me? By gosh, they did. I don't even think it's a matter of, well, you know, she broke a law or she committed an injustice and she has to face justice. I think it's more a matter of, look, once we get you onto that electronic plantation, once we get you into the system, 
Even if we're pretty sure that you're ultimately going to be found not guilty, or maybe we're just going to drop the charges down the road, you've still incurred major legal expenses. There's no such thing as a minor legal expense. And we drag your name through the mud. We get people angry at you. I mean, it's kind of a win-win for the authoritarians. If we can trash you, if we can, you know, cause you lots of financial distress, but don't have to actually take it to the point of of convicting you. You know, I just I just heard the phrase a couple of weeks ago, lawfare. Weaponizing the legal system with no intention of seeing that uh, justice is being done, but just simply punish people through the process itself. It's happening with those who are accused of, you know, insurrection. At the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, a lot of people were just, they were just there. They weren't assaulting anybody. They weren't breaking anything. It's really interesting because there's a double standard that's at play here. There's a great article. I I will have this one in the show notes. This is from uh, the Mises Institute. And the author of this piece is uh, Jose Nino. Government property is sacred. Your property, not so much. He says, in light of the government's response to the January 6th storming of the Capitol, anyone with a sense of political sanity can no longer argue that the war on terror is separate from American domestic affairs. U.S. imperialism came full circle on January 20th, 2021, when Washington, D.C. was subject to military occupation during Joe Biden's inaugural address in order to secure the Capitol from alleged domestic extremist threats. When the right-wing violence that D.C. talking heads were squawking about never came to pass, well, then their focus shifted toward trying to de-radicalize right-leaning individuals who hold heretical views that collide with the managerial regime's regime's gospel. Do you remember former CIA director John Brennan, one of the most vocal of the national security analysts who started listing off all sorts of problematic groups that potentially pose a threat to the dystopian political order crystallizing before our very eyes? The very act of a mob entering the holiest of the holy sites was enough to make the entire American political establishment have a mental breakdown. But the message the ruling class sent to those who protested against it on its own turf was quite clear. Tread your muddy boots on our cathedral and you will be met with a firm response from the state. Now, so far, there have been over 380 people charged for participating in the January 6th incident. Rest assured, politicians who are still shaken from January 6th are thirsting for more people to persecute. Words like coup, insurrection, riot, sedition, and treason were tossed around liberally to describe the January 6ers' actions. Only a regime insecure of its legitimacy would throw a hysterical fit over the capital storming that looked more like a live-action role-play than a rebellion that threatened the sovereignty of the D.C. occupational regime. Pace the gatekeepers of political opinion, launching a coup requires strong organizational capacity. Ragtag groups of disgruntled working class Americans, disenchanted soccer moms and extremely online Trump supporters aren't going to be pulling off a coup against the most powerful government in human history. The only venues the January 6th demonstrators were capable of taking over were online chat rooms. But here's where that idea that government property is sacred, your property, not so much, comes from. The double standards the legacy media is using to rationalize its ongoing crusade against the specter of extremism are farcical, to say the least. 
Over the course of a year, when small business owners had their livelihoods destroyed by arbitrary lockdowns and widespread rioting, the ruling class tipped their glasses to the rioters and scoffed at those who had put up who had to put up with last summer's mayhem. These same media mouthpieces would likely be cheering on color revolutions and lively protests in the Middle East and post-Soviet countries as the maximal expression of democracy. But when a rowdy group of Trump supporters took it upon themselves to stand up to their overlords, well, that was simply a bridge too far. Here's a good example of it. Any attempt to try to point out the inconsistency of the media's hyperventilation with regard to January 6th was met with instant pushback. Here's what uh, Morning Joe TV host Joe Scarborough said. Quote, I know there are idiots on other news channels, cable news channels that will say, well, this is mom and pop store that was vandalized during the summer riot. And that's just as bad as the United States Capitol being vandalized. Now, he then had some colorful language for those who hazarded to question the prevailing narrative, saying, quote, no, jackass, it's not. It's the center of American democracy. No, jackass, I'm not going to confuse a taco stand with the United States Capitol. Jose Nino says only a detached member of the ruling class whose livelihood is sustained by some of America's most powerful corporations can have the gall to downplay the trials and tribulations untold numbers of small business owners had to endure during last summer's mayhem. Scarborough and his coterie would have us believe that paying respect to the hallowed institutions of mass democracy is the highest virtue. Well, trying to defend the fundamental property rights of the common man, well, that's the that's the province of buffoons and country bumpkins. There's much more to this article. I will let you find it and read it for yourself in the show notes at the com. Look, reassuring ourselves, it can't happen here, man. America's exceptional. That's a pathetic cope that ignores the iron laws of politics and, and economics, of which the U.S. is not exempt. The only thing exceptional is the level of befuddlement that many experts will find themselves in once the U.S. inevitably careens into the abyss of social and economic decadence if the country's leaders don't get their acts together. Well said, Jose Nino. All right, thanks for bearing with me. I know I've been on a bit of a tear this last half of the hour, but I feel much better. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for letting me get it off my chest. This is The Brian Hyde Show.